You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed. We talk about the labor numbers out of the U.S., how Europe is doing with COVID-19 and their recovery in general, and also get his updated views on emerging market debt. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. I have Dustin Reed here for our bi-weekly podcast. Dustin, welcome back. Thanks very much. Good to be here. I thought I'd kick things up off with a uh, with one of the reporting numbers that came out of the U.S., the non-farm payroll. Uh, it was a fairly substantial miss compared to consensus. Uh, walk me through you, your reaction to that. Was that surprising? Uh, and uh, what implications might that have uh, for the sort of short or medium term outlook? Yeah, I would say it was it was a, a big surprise. I think the lowest I saw on the on the survey heading in was was around uh, six or seven hundred thousand. So it was definitely a big miss uh, coming in in the two hundreds. I, I mean, I would say a couple of things, and you know, it's it's tough to exactly pull apart what's going on. But, you know, clearly the headline was a miss. I will say that, uh, and many people may not be aware of this, but the the number that you see, the big headline number is um, seasonally adjusted by the Bureau of Labor Services month to month. And that that basically means they take into account, you know, the seasonality factors. So um, to try and, um, you know, you know, mean revert it for lack of a better term. Uh, or benchmark it, uh, you know, these numbers going, you know, on a, on a rolling basis. So when you see, um, you know, a headline, you know, less than 300,000 jobs created in the U.S. for the month of April, that is not totally accurate because there's a seasonality uh, component in there. And in fact, the seasonality component um, took the number down by a little over 800,000 jobs. So the the number that printed before before the seasonal impact was actually close to 1.1 million, and to be fair, that's not the number that people were trying to forecast. People were trying to forecast the the seasonally impacted number, which was obviously quite a bit lower. But but there's a, an important uh, differentiation, and and that differentiation is, you know, oh the 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 rebound is slowing, and that that might be a step too far because. The reality is before the seasonal factors, the, the statistical seasonal factors came in, um, there was just under 1.1 million jobs created in the month. So, you know, my, my opinion is that, uh, you know, the job report was definitely worse than expected or lower than expected. And uh, clearly a lot of these temporary workers that have traditionally found their way into the workforce around April did, did not for whatever reason. And we'll get to that in a sec. But the idea that the, that the recovery is slowing down, it doesn't, it doesn't match up with what I think a lot of people are probably reading, um, you know, online in the paper, you know, seeing it for themselves, you know, anecdotally what's happening in the U S. And I, I would say that, uh, the, the non-seasonally adjusted number would, would seem to suggest that that's the case as well. So what I think is happening here is that a lot of the seasonal uh, workers um, or temporary workers did not come uh, 
in in the, into the labor market as they sometimes do, or at least traditionally do in April. I think a lot of that is due to the stimulus checks. Um, not all of it, but but a lot of it. These stimulus checks are sizable, and the amount that a lot of weekly, the amount that people are getting per week is is uh, in often in many cases more than they would be making at work. Um, you know, on a, on a, on a minimum wage or a low or a low income, uh, hourly wage. And, you know, given, uh, you know, the tendency to either, you know, work or not work for, you know, the same money or, or less. Uh, obviously there are still some lingering impacts of, of, of COVID happening, uh, obviously still, uh, you know, globally and, and in the U.S., even though the vaccination rates were quite high. Uh, I, what I think you're seeing is a lot of these low, uh, uh, low income, uh, jobs are, are not getting, are not getting filled. And, you know, I'm reading more and more every week about, uh, employers having to do, uh, extra things to try and, to try and attract workers, even, even just to get these people to interview. And so what I think is, so there's kind of a, a couple things going on. One, um, you know, the, the number was not as you know, not, not terrible in the way that the recovery is still going on, but there is a labor shortage, particularly at the lower, uh, side of the, of the income stream, because these stimulus checks are sizable and they're going on for a while in terms of months and it's distorting the labor market. It's structurally distorting, uh, the labor market. And that is a problem for employers who, uh, need to, you know, find workers, uh, on, uh, of an economy that's obviously reopening. And I would say reopening very, very quickly, uh, by many accounts, um, Q2 real GDP in the U S is looking to be double digits, maybe even 11 or 12% on a quarter over quarter basis, which is a, you know, a huge print, um, even well above the Q1 print. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. And, uh, you know, it's a very, it's, it's going to be exceptionally interesting to see how, um, this gets fixed. And, and meanwhile, you have President Biden essentially looking at the, you know, the weaker than expected headline number, not, not really taking into account the seasonality impact. Although I'm sure, uh, some people are telling him maybe, maybe after the fact how it, how it maybe works, but he's using the opportunity to say we need more stimulus. I, I would argue that, uh, at least from a labor market perspective, uh, some of the stimulus is, is significantly distorting the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the lower end of the labor market. And that's, that's going to be very, that's going to be very, very challenging for, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, small businesses and small and medium sized businesses that, you know, pay, uh, you know, lower wages that maybe are not attached to benefits. Um, you know, those costs are going to go up significantly and, uh, it, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. So th- this is, this is sometimes what happens with, um, you know, big, big outlays by the government. And, uh, I mean, obviously these outlays were very needed. I guess the question is now, you know, how much and for how long? Um, but when you can sit on your, you know, to say it in a very simplistic way, when you can sit on your couch and make more than, uh, you know, than, than, than going to work. And all the costs associated with work and risks, sure. um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, a lot of people are going to choose to, um, you know, to stay at home or at least, or at least not work. And, uh, 
you know, you're seeing that. There was this really interesting, um, <laughs> there was this really interesting picture of, uh, Kyle, uh, from Kyle Bass. Kyle Bass runs, uh, one of the hedge funds down in, uh, down in Texas. Uh, and he's pretty famous for being short the uh, mortgage market in uh, 2007, 2008. Um, he took a picture at, I believe, the Houston Galleria uh, in Texas. And there is a monster lineup. I mean, a snake of a lineup outside the Gucci store and outside the, uh, the LVMH store. Um, and apparently he, this is on his Twitter feed. And apparently he asked, you know, why are you, you know, like, is there something going on? Is there a special, like, is there something like somebody here? Like, you know, why is this happening? And a couple of people who he spoke with said, you know, we're going to treat ourselves, uh, you know, with the stimulus check money. Uh, so I thought that was, you know, so I think you're seeing, I think you're seeing that. So, so if that is the case, um, and there is a, uh, problem to attract sort of the lower end of the job market, what's the, what's the natural response to that over the, the coming months? Like, is it, is it just wages get uh, repriced upwards Do businesses go without or, or is it a combination of both? What's, what's the sort of uh, impact of that? I mean, I think there's going to be a few things. Some businesses will not be able to make it, which is obviously very unfortunate given that they probably made it this far um, right. because they can't attract workers. Some will obviously have to, you know, to your point, you know, become a lot more productive. So maybe they'll have, you know, two people working the jobs of what three people were doing before or, you know, sure. or something like that. Right. And say, and save that and save that wage. Uh, others will look to attract talent. Um, and, and, you know, either, you know, either via, via higher wages or, you know, some sort of uh, supplementary, you know, benefit, whether that's, uh, you know, medical or, um, you know, so, you know, something else, uh, you know, free, free college tuition or, you know, we'll pay for your college tuition. Um, you know, we'll offer you a hundred dollars to come in and interview. Um, right. you know, it'll be, a, it'll be a combination of all those things because, you know, the government's passed this bill. Um, the COVID, you know, the relief spending bill, uh, you know, Biden's big $1.9 trillion bill. So this money is there. It's earmarked. Like it's not, it's not going to get rolled back. So, right. um, you know, that money, that money is there to be taken. So now, you know, it, now firms are going to have to adjust and, and figure out how to, you know, and how to, and how to live with that reality. I mean, at some point this will, you know, this will subside, you know, probably via those three things and, and maybe, and maybe others. Um, but, uh, but, but it's going to, there's clearly a distortion in the, the lower income portion of, of the labor market, um, you know, in, in the U S and, uh, and we're seeing it, I would say, uh, in the numbers. And I'd say we're seeing it, you know, anecdotally, you know, the stories are, the stories are everywhere. I mean, it's, it, you, you can't, you really, if you look at any financial, any financial blog or, or wire, uh, it's, it's impossible to, to not find these stories that, uh, you know, we can't, we can't find, we can't, we can't bring people in the door. We can't, we can't hire them. Um, right. you know, and we've got so much demand, uh, you know, but we just can't find enough, enough people to fill the spots. Maybe we'll leave the, the comments there on, on the non farm payroll. Uh, interesting. Uh, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, I'd like to turn the, discussion over to Europe now. Um, and uh, Europe, uh, after probably a uh, not a perfect rollout, call it of vaccines, uh, is starting to to 
um, progress a little bit uh, more on the vaccine front. They're starting to think about reopening. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your uh, view on Europe uh, and the ECB. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that Europe is on a, you know, in kind of the slingshot part of the trajectory here with respect to COVID vaccines and, and the rollout. Um, most, most data has uh, the seven day uh, moving average of uh, vaccinations uh, given, doses given in continental Europe uh, at a higher run rate now than in the U.S. Obviously, it was higher in the U.S. for a long, long time. Uh, but uh, by many accounts, kind of hit, you know, kind of hit the peak in terms of uh, number number of doses given. Uh, not that everybody is vaccinated or uh, even even had one shot, but there seems to be a little bit of, you know, the people that want to get vaccinated or need to get vaccinated did. And now you're kind of into the, the population that is, you know, believing that they have a choice, you know, rightly or wrongly. And, um, you know, but, but Europe is very much on that, on that upswing here. <clears throat> we believe, I believe in, and I think that the team broadly believes here that hasn't necessarily been, um, priced into, to assets. Um, and I think that the ECB also sees the, the, the recent over the last four ish weeks or so, uh, the, the real, uh, move, move higher in, in vaccination rates in, in Europe and what it means for the economy in terms of, you know, opening up kind of that, that slingshot effect that we've really been seeing in the U.S. for the last two or three. I think it's now continental Europe's turn. And, um, you know, the ECB has a meeting, uh, next month in June. I believe it's June 9th. And I would say it's a very live meeting. And by live, I mean, you know, some meetings are more important than others. And I think that this one is, uh, it's a, it would be a forecast meeting. And uh, I think the ECB might be prepared to, uh, very gingerly, uh, try and dial down the amount of, um, purchases it is doing on a weekly basis through its emergency program, its pandemic emergency purchase program or, or the PEP. And, um, I think that that could be a very, I don't think that's in the market yet. And I think that's a very important uh, distinction from essentially this, the, you know, the number two central bank in the world, um, saying that, and again, they're not, they're not going to go to zero, but they're going to, you know, taper or sort of slow, slow the pace of purchases. Um, and, and I think that that signal, uh, the signal signaling around that and the optics around that are, are important in terms of the, you know, the global rebound. Uh, you know, clearly the, the continental Europe, re, the rebound of continental Europe and, uh, the yields, as I'm sure everybody know, knows, uh, in Europe have been, uh, you know, uh, I'll say depressed, which might be not quite the right, right word, but, you know, they've been negative for a long period of time on, you know, in the benchmark, the benchmark German bonds. Uh, I think they're around uh, minus 18 or minus 20 basis points here as we speak. Um, we see a lot of upside there. We see a lot of upside there, as well as some of the other major uh, economies in terms of in terms of yield. And uh, in, in in many ways, you know, from a price perspective, we think that um, uh, you know some of the larger European sovereigns could actually underperform in terms of price. So rates move faster, high rates move higher faster um, than in the U.S. Uh, over the coming months. And I think that uh, the ECB meeting in June is going to be uh, a, a a significant pivot point in in that discussion. So we we like being uh, pretty underweight European uh, sovereign fixed income here. So so lower prices, higher yields, 
And, um, you know, like, like that idea, maybe not only in, in Germany, really, but also, um, also in France and, and Italy. Um, and think that there's, uh, uh, you know, a real, a real opportunity here to take advantage of, um, of, uh, you know, being, of being, uh, you know, short those, short those sovereigns, uh, looking for a lower price and, and higher yield. And I think that'll be very interesting because I, I don't think the Fed still, uh, is going to change its tone in June. So you're going to have, uh, you know, back to back weeks where, where the, the ECB meets, I believe it's the ninth and, uh, the Fed meets the following week, which I believe is the 16th on the Wednesday. And I think you'll have, and it really won't be that different, but, but just the subtle difference of the, of the ECB backing off ever so slightly. But the Fed, I think not changing its tone is, you know, is not insignificant. And so, you know, we, we can see a, we can see a period ahead of us here for the next two or three months where, again, a European fixed income underperforms from a price perspective. So yields moving, you know, quite a bit higher than, um, than, than, than U.S. yields. And, um, we like, we like that idea. Um, you know, for any, for any portfolio, really, um, doesn't have to be a global portfolio. It could be, could be any portfolio. And, uh, you know, and, and from that perspective, I think, uh, I think the dollar is also going to continue to be on the weaker side here for the next little bit as the global recovery continues to march on, um, as, as it has quite strongly. Um, you know, the reflation trade is very much in play. Um, break evens are on a tear. Um, with uh, 10-year break-evens in the U.S. up uh, around 255 or 257 as I speak, and um, you know the highest point, the highest point in a, in well over a decade, um, and 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 obviously the highest point uh, at this point in the cycle. And uh, you know the inflation narrative is the reflation narrative is very much very much in play and very much in vogue here. And I think that that you know, we've talked about it a few times. I think in this space, I've liked the reflation trade for a while. I didn't think it was completely crowded, but there's, I think there's a long way to go here. And, uh, so things like, uh, high beta currencies, uh, higher yields, uh, short dollar, um, you know, long commodities, you know, throughout, you know, whether it's the hard commodity itself or, um, you know, commodity plays, I think are all, you know, quite, quite interesting here. And, um, you know, the Fed being the Fed watching this and I think staying on the sidelines is really only only adding fuel to the fire. And, um, you know, we've talked about the average inflation targeting uh, story. We've talked about the um, uh, the labor market uh, story and how the Fed views that now going forward, having you know amended its its framework. And I think that that's, you know, we're in it. And in the last couple of weeks, the Fed has continued to essentially, except for maybe one. Uh, except for one, uh, one, one person from, from, from Dallas, the Dallas Fed president, someone ironically right. given what I said before about the, uh, the lineups at the mall. Um, <laughs> but, but you're, you know, but you're, you're, everyone's basically singing from the same songbook. And it's, you know, it's, it's too early to talk about tapering. It's too early. And, you know, we're, we're, we're too far from our goals. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a lot, that's a, you know, it's a very good, it's a very good spot for risk. Um, you know, risk appetite globally across asset classes. And, uh, and you're definitely seeing it, you know, from a macro fixed income perspective, which is obviously by you know, my, my radar, it, you know, I think you're very much, you're, you're very much seeing that. And, uh, 
you know, markets are trading, markets are trading accordingly. The one, the one part, the one part that's probably missing a little bit is, you know, nominal U.S. yields have not kept up, uh, over the last right. little bit. And, um, I think the Fed staying a little bit more dovish is having to do with that, but you are seeing it, um, channeled by, uh, the break even side. And, uh, you know, their break evens are up 20, break, 10 year break evens in the U.S. are up 20 basis points in the last two weeks. And it's, you know, it's a significant move. Great. Um, very interesting. Uh, it, it seems as though um, the Fed is um, immovable or are not influenced by uh, by these types of actions. Do you think that the, the June tapering of the ECB, uh, like the market had a different view than the Fed, call it uh, four weeks ago or so, maybe longer. Um, do you think that eventually the Fed becomes influenced by these market participants or they're just sticking with their with their guidance and um, and they will continue forward until they see improvement of employment and, and uh, some of the other things that they've they stated? I mean, that is that is the question. I think that that is the question. You know, will you know, the market's been testing the Fed for a bit. Will will the Fed kind of break? Uh, away okay. from what I think it wants to do from a new, um, you know, from a, from a new framework perspective, uh, will it break and kind of be more in line with, you know, where the market believes it should be? And, and that is, that is really in many ways the question. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, the Fed has, you know, absolutely been rock steady. Uh, I mean, I was probably more than I've ever seen in my career since hmm. January, February about this is what we're looking for. You know, we're looking for, um, what I would call outcome based forward guidance. Um, you know, we want to see inflation above 2% for a prolonged period of time. I haven't defined it yet, but we've talked about what that definition might be on, on, on this podcast a few times. Um, and, and ditto on the labor market. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think, I think full employment for the Fed is three and a half. The Fed doesn't want full employment. The Fed wants maximum employment. And that means that everyone has to be participating in, in the, uh, you know, in, in the economic recovery and only having, you know, uh, a handful or a section, uh, you know, or, or part of the labor market really, uh, enjoying the, the recovery is at least if you, if you take the Fed to be believed, then it's, you know, it's not good enough. So it's, it's going to be tough, but, you know, and the Fed's obviously, also stuck to this transitory uh, language, literally uh, that word, with respect to the inflation spike that we're going through right now. Um, right. Not, not market inflation spike per se, but you know, the data inflation spike. And we'll have obviously the CPI data uh, for April uh, print this week, which is you know, which is a very important piece of the puzzle here. So, you know, I, I've generally been on the side of you know we're going to see slightly higher than expected inflation. But it's not going to run away and it will come back. Keep in mind the Fed, at least from a central tendency forecast perspective, as of March, expected CPI for 2022 next year to be lower than 2021. So as soon as you see that break, then if that, if that starts to break, then that's going to tell you something, I think. Right. Um, if there was one that's going to break before the other, I think the inflation side could break a little more and the Fed might be a little bit more concerned for sure. I think it's going to be tough for the labor market to get to what I think the Fed wants to see as max employment, maximum employment. And that's where when you have a dual mandate and you're supposed to not, you're not going to do anything until you see the dual mandate. 
I think it's going to be tough for the Fed to move away until it gets to the max employment side. I really believe that this Fed wants to um, get as much of the workforce that has been marginalized uh, back working as possible. You even had uh, Vice Chair Clarida say last week, or mine, if I would say, last week that you know we still have over 8 million people that are unemployed now than before the pandemic. And I, I don't think they're going to let that go. Um, right. So, so I, so I don't, it's, it's going to be very challenging. And this is where, you know, particularly on the inflation side, the market's going to be testing. So that's mm-hmm. where the break even trades really interesting. Hmm. Um, you know, if the Fed's holding the ground, you know, high, again, high beta currencies, which we like and have across all our portfolios, you know, we're very neutral on our U.S. dollar exposure against, against the Canadian dollar. Um, and, and have been for a long time, just so we're not getting, um, we're not getting, uh, hurt by, 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 um, by a, a weaker, a weaker U.S. dollar and stronger Canadian dollar. Um, so I think it's going to be very, I think it's going to be very tough for the Fed. This is going to be a very challenging few months. And we talked about this, you know, I think probably even a month or six weeks ago, just how Q2 is going to be all about inflation and it could run mm-hmm. a little bit hot, kind of beyond the base effects, but. And I think we're in it, like as we speak, this is, you know, we're in it right now. And um, there are a lot of Fed speakers this week, and we'll have to see how the Fed, uh, how the Fed decides to, uh, you know, to message it. So maybe we'll move now to uh, talk a little bit about emerging markets. Um, There's a fairly tragic uh, wave of COVID going through India, obviously. Uh, That's having pretty profound uh, impacts on the people and economy, of course, of India. I'm curious just about your views on uh, emerging markets. I know you were fairly bullish on the local uh, debt um, uh, EM market earlier this year. Has that position changed at all? How, how do you think about things like the the third wave um, in India or, or the other emerging market countries? Yeah, for sure. And the uh, yeah, it's very it's very tough to watch and read about about the India uh, COVID story. To be sure, it's it's very it's very tough. And uh, you know, you hope that that gets under control. You know, yesterday kind of thing. Um, yeah. the, the sooner the better. Um, it, it has not, from a market's perspective, it has it has not had a uh, a significant impact on on EM you know EM markets. You know, the bigger driver, you know, has been the global reflationary story, and I would say the fact that the dollar is weaker, and uh, nominal rates in the U.S. have not really moved higher in the last number of weeks. I would say since the beginning of the quarter, really, and. That 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 is presenting a from a very broad macro perspective, um, pr- pretty good uh, investing environment for for EM. We continue to like it. Uh, I will say, you know, we we liked it at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, but rates moved higher. U.S. rates moved a lot moved higher. We we did expect that, particularly after the Georgia election. Um, you know, but rates moved a little bit higher than we thought. And that delta, that speed of the change, so to speak. Uh, got markets a little bit concerned about EM, particularly, I would say, EMFX and EM local currency. Now that uh, from a macro perspective, those things have settled down, and I would say even maybe going the other way, particularly on the U.S. dollar side, you know, we continue to like that uh, EM story. And we like we like broad, you know, being long EM uh, or even overweight EM kind of, you know, depending on your benchmark. Um, the reflation story is, 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 again, I think very much in play here. The commodity story is 
and, and commodity cycle and rally is, is very much in play. I and mean, that sounds obvious, but you know, we've been looking at that for a while. And I think that, I think EM does well in, in a, in an outperforming, uh, global environment where risk is generally, there's a lot of risk appetite, risk is generally bid. Um, and high beta currencies do well. And I think that, um, you know, the foundations are there. I mean, clearly there are pockets of challenges, you know, in, in within the EM space. Um, you know, that's why we like buying, um, that's why we like, you know, buying, um, ET, the, you know, the ETFs from a, from a broad basket perspective, you know, QBBL and QBBH are, you know, our, our EM baskets that are, that are, um, that are uh, Canadian dollar neutral for Canadian investors um, are really are, are really interesting products from that perspective. You get the exposure to um, EM without you know without the the foreign currency risk, and I think that um, you know those types of things uh, are you know are, are are good for are good for this this um, part of the cycle and this in terms of um, in terms of looking for additional yield or additional pickup here for the next few months, maybe, and maybe even a few quarters, um, you know, buying single name EMs is, you know, I, I view it as like buying single name high yields. Um, you know, you, you can do that. Uh, but you know, there's always, uh, you know, there's always, you know, challenges if you hold maybe one or two names only in your portfolio, cause you just, you just sure. don't know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, we have people obviously that do high yield full time. It's all they do. And they look at only a certain, <laughs> you know, a certain, uh, a certain industry, you know, within EM and that's all, and that's all they do. And that's all they spend their time on. And, um, you know, it's tough to get, it's tough to get, uh, single names, right? Cause sometimes things happen in a country, in an EM country, in any country really, but in any, in particularly EM and you just, it's just unexpected. And, uh, you, know, you wouldn't have thought that. So we, we very much like kind of being long EM, whether it's hard currency or local currency. I personally think local currency will outperform here, the hard currency for a little bit. Uh, again, because of the reflationary theme, but you know, the, I think the, um, you know, buying it, you know, from a basket perspective, doing it from an ETF perspective, I think are, are smart ways to, to have exposure here for, for the next little while. Um, you know, we like, you know, if you like single names, Again, in the global, if you believe in the global reflationary environment, you know we like uh, you know high yielders that give you lots of carry, or high real yielders. So, you know Mexico is interesting, Russia is interesting, Brazil is interesting, you know, but those all have their own, you know, their own um, you know particular uh, you know uh, idiosyncratic issues that that may or may not crop up, um, you know, within each country. Um, notice that Brazil is hiking rates already. Notice that Russia is already hiking rates, um, you know, to try and uh, get ahead of their their own domestic. And I personally think that Mexico is not too too far away from kind of turning the corner from cutting to to hiking rates, particularly with corn prices uh, up, I think forty percent this year, and that was last week. And I think it's probably had a bit of a rally since then. And corn's a very uh, important part of the uh, the food basket in. Uh, input into the food basket in, in Mexico. So it has a, it has a significant impact on the domestic CPI numbers. Um, so I mean, if you're looking for kind of sovereigns that we like, and we like, we like those, um, Chile is also very interesting given the copper play, although that's obviously moved a, a massive amount already right. this year. So it's debatable. It's debatable how, you know, do you want to get in at this point? 
because it's already moved so much, but kind of reflationary slash huh, like higher uh, real yielding sovereigns are, you know, names that we hold, um, you know, uh, uh, singularly uh, across the portfolios and in our, obviously our global portfolios. But, uh, you know, for, for maybe more, more the retail investor that doesn't want to do singles, um, single names, uh, you know, the, uh, the ETF, the ETF uh, option is, is, is a good one to kind of mitigate your risk uh, across, you know, uh, I would say a number of handfuls of, uh, of EM names. Dustin, uh, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Very insightful as always. Uh, look forward to uh, chatting with you a couple of weeks from now. That sounds great, Matt. Thanks very much for having me. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 